Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. And here are the headlines for this evening. Earlier today, Dane County Democratic State Representative Gary Hebel announced he will not be running for re-election this fall. Hebel was initially elected to the state assembly in 2002. His father preceded him in that position. Hebel represents an area containing Sun Prairie, Stoughton, and Cottage Grove. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Hebel is now the seventh Assembly Democrat to announce they are not seeking re-election. He also joins 13 Assembly Republicans who have also chosen not to run for another term. At age 70, Hebel says that he will now focus on his personal life and spending time with his grandchildren. Current Dane County Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe has announced that she will now be running for the seat. Ratcliffe was first elected as Dane County Supervisor in 2018 and recently won re-election, beating out her challenger, Andrew McKinney. The Department of Natural Resources Board has restarted the clock on the two-and-a-half-year process of establishing groundwater standards for specific bacteria. The same board rejected the standards that had previously been proposed by staff last month. The standard for E. coli and total coliform bacteria are particularly important because they indicate fecal contamination. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, about two-thirds of the state, including Dane County, get their drinking water from groundwater. E. coli can cause acute gastrointestinal illness as well as chronic problems including hepatitis and kidney failure. A statue outside the state capitol honoring the highest-ranking Wisconsin soldier to die in the Civil War will be rededicated during Memorial Day weekend. The statue of Colonel Hans Christian Hegg was torn down by protesters in the summer of 2020. Hegg was a Norwegian immigrant who became an American citizen and fought to abolish slavery, and had this, uh, his statue had stood outside the Capitol's King Street entrance since 1926. The statues of Colonel Hegg and Lady Forward on the State Street entrance were reinstalled in September 2021 after extensive restoration work. Costs to repair the Hegg statue were estimated between $30,000 and $50,000. The rededication ceremony will be held on Sunday, May 29th at 1 p.m. at the King Street entrance of the Wisconsin State Capitol, according to Channel 3000. An unidentified developer is proposing a 14-story project with roughly 250 apartments and office space to replace the structurally questionable downtown office building that currently houses Paisan's restaurant. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the owner of the 12-story building at 131 West Wilson Street has filed his intention to demolish the building despite objections from Paisans. The building has closed and reopened twice over the last several months due to structural concerns. The proposed 14-story structure would rise to the height limit of buildings on the isthmus. The city most recently ordered the property shut after occupants of the building reportedly felt shaking or swaying inside. Temporary supports were installed in the parking garage, allowing it to reopen in October. The building was constructed in 1971. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 798 confirmed cases of the virus across Wisconsin yesterday, as the virus looks to be ramping up once again. That brings the state to an average of 673 confirmed cases each day over the last week. Additionally, there were four new confirmed deaths from the virus across Wisconsin yesterday. 
Here in Dane County, there were 192 confirmed COVID-19 cases yesterday, continuing the upward trend of cases in the area. This brings Dane County back up to having a high transmission rate, according to metrics set by the CDC. Additionally, 25 people remain hospitalized from the virus here in Dane County and yesterday uh, recorded no no new deaths. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. A joint investigation by the news outlets Wisconsin Watch and the Anchorage Daily News reveals numerous cases of child abuse allegations made by a former Wisconsin pediatrician were rejected by child welfare officials, the criminal justice system, and other doctors. Dr. Barbara Knox worked as a pediatrician at the UW Family Children's Hospital in Madison before moving to Alaska. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. A joint news investigation found child abuse expert Dr. Barbara Knox, formerly of the University of Wisconsin's American Family Children's Hospital, made several diagnoses of child abuse that were later rejected by other doctors and the criminal justice system. Alfonso Claiborne was charged with first-degree reckless injury in 2016, after Knox asserted Claiborne had abused his then-three-month-old son. Claiborne called 911 after finding the baby unresponsive in his crib. A prosecutor dropped the charges more than a year later after other medical experts submitted other possible reasons for the baby's collapse. But Claiborne spent seven weeks in jail after getting caught with marijuana, violating his bail based on the false charges. When I went into jail, he wasn't walking. When I got out of jail, he was speaking and walking. I felt like I was kidnapped, basically. I was robbed and kidnapped. Claiborne's is one of 12 cases of Knox's wrongful diagnoses revealed in an investigation by Wisconsin Watch and the Anchorage Daily News. Knox left the UW in 2019 to lead Alaska Cares, the state's child abuse forensic clinic, amid an investigation into workplace bullying allegations. Knox did not respond to numerous calls and emails by Wisconsin Watch and the Anchorage Daily News requesting comment on the investigation. For Stacey Hartje, clearing her name took eight years and a quarter million dollars in legal fees. In 2007, a three-year-old at her home daycare collapsed. She says she caught him before he hit the floor and called 911. An emergency craniotomy saved his life, but Knox claimed Hartje had physically abused the child. Prosecutors used Knox's medical opinion as a linchpin in their case against Hartje, which they twice revived, trapping Hartje in a years-long legal battle. I wish there was just more avenues of people trying to help people who are accused instead of just accusing them and closing the book on them. Like, I would hate to know how many people are in prison because of this. In January, Knox submitted her resignation as Alaska's top child abuse doctor, effective April 1st. Alaska Cares placed Knox on leave last year after current and former co-workers reported her for alleged bullying and questioned her medical judgment. During Knox's tenure in Alaska, the entire clinic's medical staff resigned or had their positions reassigned. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The city of Madison is considering a new fee on recycling collection services that would be added onto the municipal services bill. The fee is one of the few options the city has to address the budget shortfall Madison faces in the 2022 budget. Reporter Nate Carlin has the story. Madison's Finance Committee met on Monday to discuss a new citywide fee on recycling. It's called the Resource Recovery Special Charge, and if passed, would be added to the municipal services bill that the city sends to residents every month. Currently, the bill consists mostly of water and sewer charges, but also includes charges for urban forestry and the landfill. 
The new fee would be a new monthly charge between $4.03 and $4.10. That adds up to about $50 over the course of a year. It would cover the cost to collect the recycling, as well as the cost the city incurs when it pays a private recycler to take the recycled material and sort it. The charge would be applied to houses and apartments up to eight units large, as well as small businesses. Larger apartment buildings and businesses that use private recycling will not be affected by the new charge. The fee was already included in the 2002 budget approved last fall. Recycling costs have risen modestly over the past few years. Rising fuel prices, as well as increased sorting fees from Pelletieri, the private sorter contracted by the city, have led to an increase in costs. The costs of recycling by the city have increased from $2.5 million in 2016 to $3 million by 2022. The fee is in part designed to offset budget shortfalls the city faces in 2022. Finance Director David Schmiedeke explains. The resource recovery charge was one of multiple actions to balance a significant gap in the 2022 budget. That gap was about $18 million and included expenditure reductions of about $1.4 million. Revenue adjustments, including the sorting special charge or now the resource recovery special charge of $1.7 million. But most of the budget was balanced through the, that one-time funding from the American Rescue Plan Act. Even if the new fee is put into effect, the city of Madison still faces a budget shortfall of between 18 and $20 million. The city is barred by state law from increasing property taxes, which is its main source of revenue. Last year, the tax base increased the least it has in 20 years, leaving the city scrambling for new ways to find funds. Recycling is one of the few options left for the city to increase its revenue. If instead the city decided to fee a core service as determined by state law, for example trash collection, they would have to reduce property taxes to offset the difference, leaving the budget no more balanced than when they started. Mayor Satya Rose Conway emphasized the necessity of this fee for the budget moving forward. I would just invite uh, all alders and certainly all members of the Finance Committee to consider finding the between $1.5 and $3 million that is implicated by this particular charge. We're certainly going to need it in the next budget. So I just encourage you to put your thinking caps on and to be innovative about uh, how we can reduce our costs if we're not willing to support raising funds. However, the move to put recycling on a fee has upset many residents. There are concerns that the new fee would be regressive. It applies to property owners in the city, but not large landowners like apartment building landlords. There is also a fear that the fee would disincentivize recycling. Street Superintendent Charlie Romines spoke to that concern on Monday. Um, So essentially, uh, what we really wanted to do was make sure that we kept it as affordable as we could, um, and then also did not disincentivize recycling. So we're looking at those single family homes through eight units and then also small businesses. We're going to focus that special charge on a per dwelling unit charge. So not the amount of pounds, not the number of carts, not the size of carts. That would all disincentivize recycling. And in truth, our marginal cost per pound of recycling is extremely low. And so Uh, Once you factor in kind of those costs that are baked in, it it wouldn't make sense to do that. But there is still a sense among some residents that the city is nickel and diming them for core services. Local resident and blogger Gregory Humphrey says that adding a fee to necessary city services undercuts the basic agreement between taxpayer and government. The core 
services of a municipality, be they police, fire, streets, garbage pickup, uh, recycling, should be covered by property taxes. And I have a problem with fees that are put into practice or contemplated to be put into practice that would undercut that foundation. I think property taxes that the city residents pay should first and foremost put all these services into action. In other words, I don't think we should have a fee structure for core services. The committee passed the new fee with a vote of four to one, with Councilperson Abbas being the sole dissenting vote on the grounds that the fee is regressive. The fee now heads back to the Common Council for a full vote. On its current schedule, the fee would go into effect on July 1st, with a projected $1.5 million raised for the city in its first year, and another $3 million for the next. Reporting for WORT News, this is Nate Carlin. Time is now 6.19 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. When people think about the criminal justice system, they probably picture lawyers duking it out in front of a judge in a courtroom. But a new podcast series will soon be putting their eye on another important part of the system, prosecutors. The new podcast, titled Open and Shut, is put together by two Wisconsin media outlets, Wisconsin Watch and Wisconsin Public Radio. The first three episodes debut next Wednesday, and today, WORT producer Nate Weggehelp spoke with reporter and host of the podcast, Phoebe Petrovic. So, Phoebe, just to begin, what is the Open and Shut podcast? Yeah, so it is a forthcoming seven-part narrative investigative series from Wisconsin Watch and Wisconsin Public Radio um, that really takes a deep dive into the world of prosecutors, looking at how they do their jobs, um, the power that they have in the criminal justice system, and what can happen if that power goes unchecked. And so this is a seven-part series, like you said. First three episodes are coming out on Wednesday. So for people coming up here, what can people expect out of this podcast series? What exactly were you looking for in uh, state prosecutors? Sure. So um, we took a really close look at um, a half a dozen or so felony cases prosecuted by um, two former prosecutors in Wisconsin. So this was former district attorney um, Vince Biskupic, who was in Outagamie County, and for excuse me, and former Winnebago County District Attorney Joe Polis. Um, both of them were in office in the 90s and early 2000s. And um, so, you know, each episode more or less dives into a different case um, and uses that to explore a different aspect of the criminal justice system and how prosecutors um, have so much power, um, why they have so much power, how they wield that power, and what the consequences can be. Um, So the first three episodes are sort of setting the ground work for um, what's to come, explaining, you know, (laughs) what a prosecutor is, that it's uh, that a district attorney in Wisconsin is an elected official um, who brings charges 
against a criminal defendant on behalf of the state. Um, and, you know, we look at the case of um, an alleged arson in the first episode, um, which, uh, you know, in which a prosecutor accused a young man of setting fire to his parents' dry cleaning business. Um, the second episode, we switch to the other prosecutor, show their relationship, um, look at some allegations of wrongdoing in that case. Um, and we take a look at a really wild case um, in which a prosecutor alleged that someone in prison was selling marijuana from behind bars to hire a hitman to kill him um, in the third episode. And so I have to ask, because I feel like a lot of people, when they think about, you know, the criminal justice system, they'll be thinking of lawyers and things like that. Why did you decide to start looking into prosecutors as a topic? Is that something that you feel maybe hasn't received maybe the attention that it deserves? Yeah. So, excuse me. I mean, the truth of the matter is that this is a story that my editor, Dee Hall, who's the managing editor of Wisconsin Watch and who before that was a longtime reporter at the Wisconsin State Journal, um, that she'd been following for over a decade. So she had a true interest in um, investigating this topic and sort of hired me to do that as her reporter. Um, And, you know, right, when people think of the criminal justice system, they think of attorneys, they think of um, judges, juries, and police officers, probably. And prosecutors, um, according to dozens of legal scholars, you know, many, many legal scholars, prosecutors say, uh, prosecutors are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice system um, because police only have the ability to bring someone to the courthouse door. Um, you know, a defense attorney is defending a client from charges. Um, the prosecutor gets to decide whether or not to you know, proceed with an arrest and, and by proceed with an arrest, I mean, a prosecutor has the ability to decide whether or not to charge someone so they stay in the system or decide they're not going to pursue criminal charges. Um, And they decide what that person is going to be charged with, um, which is, you know, uh, has been argued as a stronger power than judges who, you know, judges get to decide the ultimate sentence, but they're basing that off of the convictions that are in front of them, which are based off of the charges that are in front of them, which come from the prosecutors. So um, this is sort of, these are elected officials, when we think of the district attorney, um, who, you know, have a immense hand in sort of uh, turning the wheels of justice. Um, and so it's an important aspect of the criminal justice system to look at. And then if we want to sort of narrow it in a little bit. Why did you choose these two specific state prosecutors to look into? Why did you focus on them? So I I will say that I really think that these two prosecutors and the cases we look at are really a lens through which to explore larger themes and realities and systems. And so for me, it's not so much these particular prosecutors and what they did as as opposed to you know, the larger structural forces that are at play. And, and these happen to be the examples we have. These happen to be the examples we have because back in 2002, um, my editor sniffed out a story or a tip um, in which, where, and she found um, working at the Wisconsin State Journal that um, then District Attorney Vince Biskupic of Outagamie County was operating um, a crime prevention fund and was, um, 
in some instances, coming to people and saying, I'm going to charge you with a crime. You know, the way that we can handle this and make this go away is if you um, donate money to this fund or to a community organization like domestic violence. Um, those obviously aren't exact words, but sort of a paraphrase of what sort of was happening. Um, and this came out right before he was running for attorney general um, and the ethics board eventually investigated. And so uh, that was sort of a big story back in 2002. And after that, she just sort of got, kept getting more and more tips about this particular prosecutor and decided to look into it. So um, one tip led her to others. But for me, it's really, um, you know, again, using these particular cases as a lens through which to explore the larger system. And sort of going off of that, I want to ask, how does this fit into the topic of criminal justice reform? Where does that fit in? Sure. So I think a lot of what this show does is, or what our reporting does is um, explore or interrogate what the current system is um, and how it came to be, which obviously then poses the question of, well, how do we fix it? What do we do about it if we decide that it needs to be fixed? Um, so I would say that we explore a few solutions through the show. Um, I will say that this is not something we talk about in the podcast, but, you know, when you when you think of criminal justice reform, you might think of bail reform or you might think of um, police reform or, you know, defunding the police. Um, and there is a movement of prosecutors called progressive prosecutors um, who are running on a progressive platform and really saying, you know, this is the system we have. This is the power that I would have as a selected official, and I am going to wield it for these particular aims. So um, deciding not to charge um, low-level marijuana possession um, cases, for example. Um, and so progressive prosecutors is really a movement where we see a lot of attention being paid to criminal justice reform. Um, and the show hopefully shows another avenue or another area um, of interest, which is more sort of structural um, changes. Well, Phoebe, do you have just any final thoughts for me? Um, no. <laughs> I think so. I hope you listen to the show. <laughs> I've been talking with Phoebe Petrovic, the reporter and host of the upcoming Open and Shut podcast. The first three episodes will be available next Wednesday and will be available wherever you find your podcast. Phoebe, thank you for talking with me here today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. The state Supreme Court hears oral arguments about the legalities of absentee ballot drop boxes. Madison in the 60s goes back to 1962 to see what voters had to say about the Monona Terrace Project. And the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with my co-host Rob McClure. But first, we'll take a break and check back in for world headlines from the BBC. Stay tuned.
The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rob McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Earlier today, the Wisconsin Supreme Court heard oral arguments to decide the legality of both absentee ballot drop boxes and who needs to return a ballot for it to be counted. The lawsuit was first brought forward by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, and was decided by a Waukesha County judge earlier this year. That decision, which came just before the spring election, threw election officials through a loop, leaving them to wonder what was legal and what was not. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Scott Thompson, staff counsel with Law Forward, who spoke at those oral arguments earlier today. So, Scott, I don't think we really need to go over all of the history of this whole case. I don't think we honestly have quite enough time. But what were you arguing about today? What were the arguments from both sides of this issue? The issues that were argued about today are highly, most, most of the issues argued about today are highly technical legal questions that involve everything from whether or not the party who brought the suit has the right to sue it, uh, whether or not the state actually properly consented to the lawsuit. But the real heart of the dispute, what was really at stake here, is a question about the right to vote and the dignity that people have in carrying out the right to vote. Um, The two principal uh, disputes are about drop boxes and ballot return assistance, both uh, familiar provisions of Wisconsin's absentee balloting scheme. And this is really important because especially as it pertains to ballot return assistance, scores of Wisconsinites rely upon it as the only way in which they are able to return their ballots, to actually vote. And these are the voters in Wisconsin who suffer from disabilities that just prevent them from being able to make it all the way to the poll. And so although there were you know, many technical legal arguments um, that went back and forth, the real heart of this case is about the franchise, um, how people can vote and whether they're going to be allowed to vote. And so now one of those sort of technical things that I think Law Forward spent quite a bit of time talking about today was uh, standing and whether or not the people who are bringing this forward actually have standing. So I need to ask for... What is standing and why? what is Law Forward's argument in saying that they do not have it? So standing in legal terms refers to the ability of someone to bring a lawsuit. Um, in federal court, uh, this question is a little bit clearer. Um, one has to have a what's called a case or a controversy under Uh, our constitution to bring a a lawsuit in federal court. In state court, it's a little bit different. It's a prudential rule is the term, Um, but it is certainly a little bit more forgiving in state courts um, as a standard by which someone is determined to have the capacity to bring a lawsuit. Um, Our basic point on this issue was that the two individuals who brought the suit initially we're still, even under Wisconsin's more refle- or flexible standard, not sufficiently aggrieved or injured to bring this lawsuit at all. Um, I can tell you that I took the depositions of both of these individuals, and quite incredibly, 
Um, neither of them had ever even seen a Dropbox. Um, one of them testified that during his deposition, uh, months after the lawsuit was filed, was the first time he had ever even seen the guidance documents that are at the epicenter of the entire case. So in other words, these two folks really didn't even know what was going on. Um, one of them even testified that he didn't know who the Wisconsin Elections Commission was, and that's the defendant in his own lawsuit. And so to be this disconnected from the process altogether, in our opinion, it just demonstrates that they, they still don't satisfy that minimum threshold standard uh, to bring a lawsuit in the first place. Now, obviously, this all sort of really kicked off before the spring election with the banning of absentee drop boxes and the new rules coming into play. Now that the election is over, has anything changed now that the election has happened and we've sort of seen the results from your point of view? Do you think anything has changed? Has anything happened in during that election that may sway it one way or another? I can't speak to whether the election was swayed one way or another, but I can speak to things that we know about, problems that have been created for voters and at the polling places as a result of the decision of the Waukesha County Circuit Court. And let me just comment on that briefly. Um, we know that clerks in certain counties, for example, um, were asking absentee voters who were returning their ballots to provide photo ID uh, when they were returning them. Um, and this was, I, I believe, an attempt to satisfy the lower court's demand that you can only return your own ballot. And although this might make some practical sense, um, in reality, these clerks do not have the legal authority to create new processes that people must follow to cast their ballot. And as it stands right now, there is no um, state statute that would require anyone who's a valid elector to present their photo ID when returning their vote. So it just goes to show that there's more confusion. Now, potentially more problematic than that is, again, the issue with voters in Wisconsin who are disabled. Um, we know, for example, that there are some individuals who need someone to either bring it back to the clerk's office, it meaning their ballot, or place it in the mail. And there have been folks, there are stories that we have heard of people who just simply were unable to return the ballot under these new uh, onerous standards. In other words, they, they lost the right to vote. Um, and so that is why it's so important that the Supreme Court understand that at the heart of this is a question about um just the right to vote and dignity in general. Uh, and that's why we are we remain optimistic that because such a core constitutional question is at stake, um, that the Supreme Court will rule in favor of disabled voters and rule in favor of access to the ballot. Now, sway was maybe not the correct term that I used there. So thank you for sort of getting what I was going at there. So sort of taking a of shift a little bit, I want to ask about sort of, is, has there been any precedent that has ever been set by the Supreme Court that may come into play with this case, or is this sort of a real one-of-a-kind, first-of-its-kind case? A, that's a great, that's a good question. And in fact, this was a point of contention between Justice Hagedorn, or not of contention, but just questions back and forth between Justice Hagedorn and uh, our co-counsel, Jeff Mandel. Um, and the answer to that question is yes. There is precedent in Wisconsin specifically as it pertains 
to ballot return assistance. And this dates back nearly 70 years. Uh, I believe it was in 1955. The case is called Sommerfeld. Um, a group of 18 voters um, had their absentee ballots returned by uh, one person. So in other words, one person returned a total of 18 ballots. Um, and the question before the Supreme Court was whether or not individuals could authorize agents to return their ballots. And, that, and that's the same question in this case. Now, there, the court said very clearly um, that especially in in the case of voters with disabilities, that because the state had granted them the right to vote, that it simply would be absurd for the court to rule that folks who would require that absentee ballot um, process would suddenly be disenfranchised. So the court ultimately ruled that this was legal. Now, there have been some changes to the statutes um, that alter how this process is construed or interpreted by our courts, but the same principle is still at play. Um, and that decision has not been overturned by anybody. And so in our our briefs and in our argument to the court, we made it clear that this question um, should already be resolved um, and the court should defer to its prior ruling against seven years of precedent and make sure that the vote of um, individuals who have disabilities is protected. So, Scott, maybe you can answer this question and maybe you can't. But when do you expect to hear a decision in this case? I know with the last election, it was thrown into a little bit of disarray with how close the decision came to the election. Do you think we that might happen again? Do you think it might take that long? So actually, this Supreme Court um, has pretty, and this is a terrible pun, but judiciously followed um, its own calendar, which more or less requires that it issue all of its decisions by the end of June. And we anticipate that this will not be an exception to that general practice. We think that there will be a decision uh, sometime in June. Now, the next election comes in August, so that's awfully close um, to our next election. So it will present challenges for clerks um, to follow the new law and carry it out in accordance with what the Supreme Court directs. But we think there's a really simple solution here, and that's just to allow the classic practice of ballot return assistance and drop boxes to continue. That's something that clerks are really familiar with um, and would not create the sort of problems that we saw in the most recent election. I've been speaking with Scott Thompson, staff counsel of Law Forward, about the oral arguments heard earlier today by the state Supreme Court on absentee ballot drop boxes. Scott, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thanks for having me. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we managed to escape the uh, wildest manifestations of this latest spring storm, but they uh, were visited upon areas almost uh, entirely around us, at least to our northwest, west, south, and actually now uh, to our southeast this evening. Those uh, manifestations included a foot and a half of snow across uh, parts of the Dakotas and two successive days, basically, of severe weather across a vast swathe of the country to the south and east of there. 
We did not end up seeing a particularly low barometer reading here like we did the past couple of weeks. 29.48 inches of mercury was as low as we got earlier this afternoon. But as a testament to how intense the storm was, at one point late yesterday afternoon, while the blizzard on the northwest side of the surface circulation was shutting down the Dakotas, the temperature reached 88 degrees close by in adjacent parts of northeast Nebraska. So that was a 60-degree temperature spread across just a couple 300 miles in there. To the east of that 88-degree reading, the temperatures were a little more muted in the mid and upper 70s to the east of the dry line, but dew points there surged well into the 60s, providing plenty of thermodynamic energy for huge thunderstorms, which were impressive to watch on satellite as they billowed up in the lowering evening sun yesterday. Those went on to produce at least a handful of confirmed tornadoes out in Iowa and a, a vast number of severe wind and hail reports. While those thunderstorms had uh, dwindled to just passing rains by the time they made it into here later last night, uh, there were damage reports as close by as Nasita and Toma up to our northwest. Uh, Toma barn roof was blown off, so that's just a little bit north and west of the listening area. As I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, this storm was predicted to go through a cycle of low-level occlusion and re-strengthening, shifting its low-level circulation center further east into warmer air. And that is precisely what's going on as we speak. Circulation number one is now swirling around in cold air up over eastern North Dakota. But the northeast-bound surge of heat and moisture that brought severe weather today up through the Mississippi Valley to southern Illinois, that's going to continue northward and help redeepen a new low-level circulation over southern Lake Michigan this evening, which will then lift northward overnight and draw the Dakota low into it, consolidating somewhere over Ontario tomorrow. The resulting circulation, while not quite as intense as it had looked on the modeling a couple of days ago, will still produce a strong enough north-to-south pressure gradient across the area to sponsor sustained uh, west-southwesterly winds of 20 to 30 miles per hour, uh, given a fair amount of uh, sunshine in the midday hours tomorrow and resulting deep vertical mixing. Gusts are likely to exceed 40 miles per hour as well, and given all of that, the National Weather Service has issued a wind advisory for most of the daylight period tomorrow. Winds should subside uh, more tomorrow evening, though they'll still be a bit breezy yet into and actually through Friday. Uh, otherwise, though, not much to be concerned with so far as uh, sensible weather is concerned this uh, coming weekend, with Canadian high pressure gradually working across the area. That'll keep us cold. By Sunday uh, midday, our next system will be starting to approach us across the northern plains, so I'm expecting an uptick in cloud cover and perhaps precipitation later in that day. But back to tonight, rains will continue to work north-northeastward across the area over the next couple hours anyway. There's currently a, an, an absence of rain on a north-south axis through about the middle of Dane County, but there's another batch north to south out to our west for about a county or two. That should be passing through the areas to the east over the next hour or slightly more than that. Uh, otherwise, though, uh, we should just see uh, some uh, cloudy skies after that through uh, the next few hours. Uh, we will drop to a low by, of about freezing by tomorrow morning on west-southwesterly winds up at 12 to 18 miles per hour. Uh, given the clearing line that's approaching from the west on visible satellite and with much drier air coming in, I suspect we'll clear out the cloud cover by and large some between midnight and dawn. 
Tomorrow, morning sunshine will be followed by an increase in cumuliform cloud cover in the midday hours that will generally be more widespread and probably thicker the further north you go and more cellular and broken to the south. The modeling's been back and forth on the extent of that cloud cover the past several days, so uh, how much full overcast we see is a bit of a tough call. Sunshine may, be, uh, may somewhat enhance the uh, gustiness of west-southwesterly winds during the day, but uh, they'll be strong enough uh, in any case to um, be reaching up to 25 or 30 miles per hour sustained during the afternoon with stronger gusts uh, towards 40 or higher. Temperatures will reach the low 40s. Winds will come down to the 10 to 18 miles per hour range tomorrow night, still west to southwest, and we should see a, some more clearing tomorrow night. Temperatures will drop to the low 30s. Friday, we'll see a similar pattern of diurnal cloud cover, though I think not quite as extensive as tomorrow. Temperatures will not improve much, still in the mid-40s for highs on westerly winds of 10 to 20 miles per hour during the day. Still a bit gusty as well. Temperatures will drop back to about 30 or perhaps even the upper 20s overnight on lighter northwesterly winds. And Saturday will generally be sunny and still a bit windy and cold for this time of year. Winds will be veering a little bit more northerly. That will keep us probably in the low 40s. We'll be back towards 30 overnight and into the mid-40s again on Sunday. Just now, down at the station here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 45 degrees. The dew point temperature is 43. Winds are out of the northwest at 10 miles per hour, still fairly gusty. We're overcast at about 5,000 feet with uh, some passing lower clouds, and the barometer's uh, rising now at 29.56 inches of mercury. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to April 1962. When voters said no to the Monona Terrace project, the council said yes to a work relief plan, and the Daily Cardinal said it wanted answers about Vietnam. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 60 years ago this month. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, April 1962. Henry Reynolds was elected mayor in April 1961 on a platform of killing the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace, which had been authorized by referendum in 1954. So Reynolds drafts and pushes through the council a referendum to reverse that earlier vote, to formally reject the law park location overlooking Lake Monona and start the process of picking a new site. On April 3rd, the referendum passes with about 54% of the vote. As an added bonus for Reynolds, three pro-terrace alders are defeated, although over local issues, not Monona Terrace. This gives the city a government unified against Monona Terrace. The mayor moves fast, calling a meeting of the auditorium committee just three days after the vote 
to start the process of formally terminating the contract which former Mayor Ivan Nestigan and Mr. Wright signed in 1956. And when the new council convenes on April 17th, Reynolds presses his advantage. He does not reappoint the leading probe Monona Terrace Alder, Northsider Richard Kopp, and stacks the panel with three aldermanic opponents. The next day, the fervently pro-Monona Terrace Capital Times expresses its outrage. A dictator takes over in City Hall and asserts he has been given a mandate to suspend minority rights. It editorializes, denouncing Reynolds' refusal to reappoint cop as, quote, a display of petulance and anger. The Auditorium Committee isn't the only place Reynolds flexes his mayoral muscle. He also shakes up the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights by not reappointing its chair, attorney and NAACP President Lloyd Barbie, a Nestigan appointee. The commission elects as its new leader the pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, Reverend Richard Pritchard. Election Day also brings good referendum news to the school board, as voters adopt by 4-1 to one a four-year $9.3 million bond package, the largest in city history. Most will be spent on the far east side, including $4.4 million for the 2,400 students in the area Madison has just annexed from Blooming Grove, and $3.1 million for the newly named Robert M. LaFollette High School. The sixth successful bond referendum since the end of World War II, it is approved by a substantial majority in all 33 voting precincts. But there's a limit to how many buildings the board will boost. It endorses the recommendation from Superintendent Philip Falk not to remodel or renovate this 1908 Central High School, which they project will stay open for at least another 10 years. I don't think we can justify large expenditures in an area of decreasing population, Falk tells the board. He also proposes moving the board offices from the old Doty School at 351 West Wilson Street into the Washington School, 545 West Dayton. On the UW campus, the great violinist Isaac Stern performs outstanding programs at sold-out Union Theater shows on the 1st and 2nd. And while he's performing the second show, over in Great Hall, black Muslim minister Malcolm X is extolling black nationalism to a group of about 500. Great Hall is also the site of the military ball on the 5th, that's headlined by Duke Ellington and his 15-piece orchestra, and the Student Peace Center's anti-military ball on the 6th. On the 11th, the Daily Cardinal, now led by 19-year-old Jeff Greenfield, the paper's first sophomore editor-in-chief in its 70-year history, demands that the U.S. government explain exactly what we're doing in Vietnam and why. It is pretty clear by now, the paper editorializes, that the American effort in South Vietnam is of a far more serious nature than has been indicated by our government. The administration has, in effect, thrown American military might into South Vietnam without consulting and without informing the American people or their representatives. Two days later, the UW Board of Visitors reports to the regents that it has examined the Daily Cardinal and, quote, noted a number of instances of a low standard of taste and an equally low concept of good citizenship. On April 12th, 
A strike of about 120 truck drivers shuts down $120 million in construction for almost a month, as members of Teamsters Local 695 strike 15 ready-mix concrete and building supply firms for higher wages and benefits. As picket lines go up at Findorf and other general contractors, work stops on the Hildale Shopping Center, the Van Vleck Mathematics Building, and in addition to Madison General Hospital. From a starting hourly wage of 265, the union seeks a 60 cent increase over a three year period. The employers offer 50. At Governor Gaylord Nelson's request, UW law professor Nathan S. Feinsinger mediates a settlement. It provides a raise of 56 cents. The same night the strike starts, the city council unanimously adopts a work relief ordinance requiring all able-bodied relief recipients to work on city-supervised projects or take vocational training in order to receive relief. The $1.47 hourly wage is set at 80% of the city's lowest pay classification and is payable in vouchers for food and housing, not cash. The ordinance also creates a seven-member board of public welfare in control of the program. And the council also adopts the first official city flag, designed by two young members of the Madison Scouts Drum and Bugle Corps, Rick and Dennis Stone, and sewn by their mother, Frances. It consists of two blue triangles representing Lake Mendota and Monona, a stripe of white running from lower left to upper right to represent the isthmus, and the sacred sun symbol of the Zia Pueblo Nation emblazoned in gold on a black background to represent the state capital. After its approval, the flag hangs upside down in the council chambers for over three years until City Attorney Edwin Conrad notices the mistake and corrects it. And at the end of the month, the council finally settles a long-standing debate over where to locate the new central library, voting 12-7 to 7 for the 200 block of West Mifflin Street. The library board had wanted a site in the 200 block of West Washington Avenue, across from the YMCA, but that land was too expensive. The parking utility has been pressing the library board to leave its building across from the vocational school on North Carroll Street so it can expand the municipal parking ramp there, which it now can. And that's this week's Madison the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Reporters were Nate Carlin and Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan was our on-air engineer. Nate Wegehaupt produced the newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.